Good morning, church. How are we doing? Good. It's so good to see all your beautiful faces. And listen, if you're new here today and you're sitting here at East Memphis or you're watching online or you're over at the Kyreville campus, uh, we just want to let you know that we are so glad you are here. From, uh, from me to you, we just want to say welcome home. And uh, our prayer is that you would find what you are looking for here at High Point Church. Um, for those of you who don't know who I am, um, especially if you're new here, you have probably have no idea who I am. My name is uh, Will, and I serve as one of the elders and pastors here at the church, and uh, we're just so glad that you are here with us this morning, regardless of how you are connecting with us right now. Uh, this morning, we are in the third and final week of our three-week series entitled Prodigal. But before we jump in this morning, what I want to do is I want to tell you about what is coming up in February. So in February, we have a very big month coming for two reasons. One, uh, we are changing our service times. And so starting in February, that first week of February, our service times will be 9 and 11. But then the other thing that I'm really excited about is that starting in February, we are starting a four-week series entitled Gospel-Centered Marriage. The Gospel-Centered Marriage. And the reason why we are calling it the Gospel-Centered Marriage is because you may not know this, but every marriage is centered on something. Every marriage is centered around something, and that can be uh, your children, that can be your career, that can be romance, that can be the other spouse, you know, the spouse's needs. But, but the reality is that every single marriage is centered on something. And what I want to argue for those four weeks is that in light of Scripture, the only thing that your marriage should be centered around is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? And so that's what we're going to do for those four weeks. Now, here's the thing. If you're sitting here this morning and you're not married... Uh, you might be thinking, man, I got to make plans for February because I'm not coming to church. I can tell you that much because this series ain't going to have nothing to do with me. But here's why it will, because actually we are beginning this series. The first message of the series will be on singleness on what it looks like to be a single, a gospel centered single person. And what I'm going to argue is that you actually can't be a good spouse if you're not good at being single. And so not only am I going to address single people in the first message, I'm going to address single people throughout. So if you're sitting here today and you're single or you're dating or you're engaged or you're divorced or you're a widow or widower, this series is for everybody. And so no excuses. You better be here. Okay. So make sure to mark your calendars and make sure to invite a friend. We're looking forward to starting that in February. But now back to our regularly scheduled programming. Um, Uh, This morning, like I said, we are in the third part of our three-part series entitled Prodigal. And one of the things that I mentioned at the beginning of the series, for those of you who were following along and paying attention, is I said that this series is going to be a vision-casting, culture-setting type series. But what's interesting is that up to this point, I haven't really done too much vision-casting. And the reason why is because I was saving all of it for this sermon. Uh, This sermon is going to be different than the previous two. The previous two, we were kind of working our way through the text. But what I want to do today is I want to zoom out and and I want to look at what does it look like for us to be a church that reflects the heart of the Father. One of the things that you might not realize, and I've tried to mention it throughout, but I want to make sure I mention again, uh, Henry Nouwen in his book on the prodigal, what he argues is that the main character in this parable is not the elder brother, it's not the younger brother, it's the father. The father is ultimately the, the, the main character. He's ultimately the person that we should strive to be like. And so what we want to do today is we want to zoom out and we want to ask, the, the question that I want to ask 
is what does it look like for us to become a church that reflects the heart of the Father? And if you remember in the first week, I gave you a definition of what a prodigal is or what a prodigal was. We said that a prodigal, we always thought, many of us have thought, right, that a prodigal was someone who was wayward, someone who was disobedient, someone who was sinful. But what we discovered is that the word prodigal, what it actually means is someone who gives until they have nothing left. It's someone who recklessly gives away their resources. That's what prodigal means. And so if that's true, then the real prodigal in the story is not the son, it's the father. Because he is prodigal with his love. He is prodigal with his grace. He is prodigal with his mercy. And so what Henry Nouwen argues in his book is that since the father is the main character of the story, then what that means is that every single one of us, to, to really get to the place of maturity where we need to be, we should all become, the longer we walk with Jesus, the more we should become less like the elder brother, less like the prodigal brother, and more like the father. That if we're going to really grow into the people that God is calling us to be, we have to move away from the legalism of the older brother, the licentiousness of the younger brother, and move towards the love of the father. We must move away from the, re the, the, the religion of the older brother, the rebellion of the younger brother, and move towards the reconciliation of the father. That, that if we truly are going to be a church that, 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 that brings honor to this parable, then we must be a church that becomes more and more like the Father. So essentially, what I want to do this morning is I want to say, okay, if our prayer, if our hope in light of this series is to be a prodigal church, what does it look like for us to be a prodigal church? And what I believe in light of this parable, that there are three things that are necessary for us to be a prodigal church going forward. The first thing that is needed is we have to be a centered church. The second thing that is needed is we have to be a compassionate church. And then the third thing that is needed is we have to be a celebrating church. So centered, compassionate, and celebrating. So let's begin with the first one. In order for us to be a prodigal church, we must be a church that is centered. But, but the question is, what are we su supposed to be centered around? What I would argue in light of scripture in general, in this passage in particular, is that the thing that we must be centered around is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just like we said that we're going to do a series called The Gospel-Centered Marriage, I believe that we should be a gospel-centered church that we should be a church that is centered around nothing more and nothing less than the gospel concerning Jesus Christ. Now, for some of you, you might be sitting here thinking, well, that doesn't seem very controversial to me. That seems like a very common thing. Aren't all churches centered around the gospel? Yeah, no, they're not. And I would actually, the majority of them are not. And I don't say that in a spirit of superiority. I say that in a, a, a spirit of reality. Most churches are not centered around the gospel. And I believe that the reason why we must be a prodigal church that is centered around the gospel is because in the story, if you're following along in the story, what you realize is that the father, he responds to the two sons with a gospel response, with a gospel response. Look what it says in verse 20 of this passage. Verse 20 of Luke chapter 15 says, and he, talking about the, the younger brother, and he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off... His father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And he, and he said, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Like if he was ever worthy to begin with. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us celebrate for this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to 
celebrate. So that's the father's response to the first son. But then you go to verse 31, and you see him respond to the second son. Verse 31, it says, and he, the father, said to his son, son, identity, you are always with me, intimacy, and all that is mine is yours, inheritance. Identity, intimacy, inheritance. And verse 32, it is fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So, so here's what I need you to see, and please don't miss this, because if you miss this, you're not going to get the rest of the message, okay? The father responds to the two sons. Even though they were radically different people, he responds to the two sons with the very same message. So the, the, he, he responds to the, to the older brother's religion and to the younger brother's rebellion with the gospel. He responds to the older brother's legalism and the younger brother's licentiousness with the gospel. He has a gospel response for both brothers. And since that's the response that the father has, I believe in light, the only way that we are ever going to be the prodigal church that this parable is calling us to be is if we are centered around nothing less and nothing more than the gospel. Now, like I mentioned earlier, some of you might be sitting here thinking, well, that doesn't seem very controversial. Seems like common sense to me. But here's why it's not. Before I tell you what it is to be a gospel-centered church, I want to tell you what it's not. Before I tell you what it is, I want to take a few moments and tell you what it's not. The first thing that being gospel-centered is not is it is not being man-centered. And many churches, as heretical as that sounds, are actually very man-centered, not only in their mission, but also in their message. And here's the thing. There are two ways that a church can be man-centered. One of the ways that you can be man-centered is you, all you preach is love. All, I'm sorry, all law. All you preach is law. Or the other way is all you preach is love. All law or all love. So, so let's look at both because both are equally dangerous. The, the first type of man-centered preaching is the people who only preach law. You, you, you've been at this church before. Maybe you grew up in a church like this. The, these are the churches that when, when, when the pastor gets up to preach, it's hell and brimstone, all hell and brimstone, right? And every week you get a list of what you can't do. And don't do this, and don't go there, and don't look at that, and don't say this, and don't, 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 don't. That's the first type of law-based preaching. But here's what's so ironic. In the 1980s, everything got so much better because the megachurch movement was born. And all of a sudden, these really cool, hip churches started coming up and saying, no, 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 no. We are no longer going to be your grandmother's church. We're going to be a new church. And instead of telling you what you can't do, we're going to tell you what you should do instead. We're not going to be negative and don't do this and don't do that. No, 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 no. We got good stuff. It's going to be all about what to do instead. We're not your grandmother's church. We're a new church. The problem is, is that even though those two types of preaching seem very different, they're actually exactly the same. Because when a church tells you don't do something, and when another church tells you to do something, they're actually the same, two sides of the same coin. It's the law coin. Don't do it, do do it. So instead of every week saying, hey, don't smoke, and don't chew, and don't hang out with girls that do, right? 
You, you, instead, uh, what you get is, if you want a good marriage, you got to take this step, and this step, and this step, and this step. If you want to be a good parent, do this, do this, do this, do this. And, and what you end up getting every week is advice. But Jesus didn't come to give advice. He came to make an announcement. The gospel is not advice. The gospel is an announcement. And so when, when, you, when all you get is advice, then that's just the other side of the law. And so what seems like this brand new movement, it's the same exact legalism with a makeover. Now, some of you, your paradigm is being shifted right now because you grew up in that church. And here's what's funny. You grew up in the first kind of church and you didn't like it. And then you went to the second kind of church and you're like, this is what Christianity is. <laughs> Problem is neither of them are the gospel. Whether they're telling you don't or do, it's still legalism. So here's what uh, Jared Wilson says. Jared Wilson is this, is this author who I really respect. And in, in his book, Gospel Driven Church, he said something that, that really impacted me. He talks about the attractional church, which is the, the new way of doing church, the, the, the people who are always telling you do this and do this and do this and do that. He talks about how the attractional church looks at the old form of church. Look at, look at this quote. He says, the attractional church leaders rightly reject this negative understanding of how to grow in holiness, which focuses on what to avoid rather than what to do. Listen to this. Instead, they opted for something more positive. This is why much of attractional preaching is preoccupied with how-to messages, which, admittedly, uh, which are immediately, admittedly drawn from the Bible. Listen to this. But the application-heavy approach of the attractional model fails to address that while the negative prohibitive law is powerless to change people, the positive prescriptive law is equally powerless. If the negative law is powerless, the positive law is equally powerless. He says, whether you are prohibiting negatively, negatively or commanding positively, the law of God, the, the, the law of God cannot change, listen to this, a single human heart to honor God. Only the grace of God. Everybody say, only the grace of God. Only the grace of God can do that. God's law is not bad or wrong. The law's power just works differently than the gospel's power. Because do and don't are simply two sides of the same law coin. By trading one for the other, the attractional church simply gave legalism a makeover. The attractional approach only increases the danger of legalism. Listen to this. The attractional approach only increases the danger of legalism. Since the old kind of legalism is much easier to spot, much less attractive, and much clumsier at getting us to follow along. The new legalism is clandestine and difficult to spot. Sadly, the attractional model has fooled us into thinking it offers innovation when in reality it's just grandfather's the grandfather's search of legalism with a fresh coat of paint. So some of you have been here. Those are the only two churches you've been to. You were at the don't do church, and then you've moved over to the do church. And you think they're different, but what I'm arguing is that they're actually exactly the same. At the end of the sermon, in both, you leave thinking it's up to me. It's more about what you need to do instead of what Jesus has already done. So, that's the first type of man-centered preaching. The second type of man-centered preaching 
It's not just the law-based preaching, but it's the love-based preaching. You know what the love-based preaching says? It's the churches that are like, hey, come here. We, we love you. You, you. you did nothing wrong. Hey, hey, God loves you. You're just perfect the way you are. God's in heaven, and he's just infatuated with you. You're just beautiful and perfect to him. Oh, you're so great. The problem with that approach is that there's no cost. There's no, there's no atonement. There's no atonement. You come in and it's all, it's all just love. See, the problem when, 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 listen to this, when all you preach is law, get this, when all you preach is law, the elder brother can stay religious. But when all you preach is love, the younger brother can stay rebellious. Because, hey, God loves me. I can do whatever I want. He's going to love me regardless. Here's the danger with only preaching, that when people, that people preach just that, that love, it's all love. It's all love here. Here's the danger with that. The danger with that approach is that what, what, what happened, because it's actually, like I said, it's another form of law in a way. But the danger with that approach is that when, when you don't tell them there's a sin problem, that you, you don't tell them they need to be rescued from something, at the end of the sermon, you bring up Jesus as a savior and it makes no sense to them. So the whole sermon has either been a whole sermon on love or a whole sermon on love. But neither of them sets you up for the gospel. So when you give the gospel postscript, it doesn't make any sense. It's like, wait, wait, you just told me, you just gave me 40 minutes about how I can do it by myself and then I need Jesus as a savior for what? Listen, if the law is attainable, then Jesus becomes unnecessary. And remember what I said last week? The problem with elder brothers, you would think elder brothers have a high view of the law, but they actually have a low view of the law. Why? Because they think they can do it. You know you when you have a high view of the law? When you, when you finally admit you can't keep it. But when you think you can do it, then a savior is not necessary. Jesus becomes unnecessary. Here's the other danger, and this is the one that bothers me the most. When, when you get a sermon, right, and, 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 and the person's telling you, let's say it's on Abraham, right? And we're like, hey, God loves you and accepts you no matter what you've done. No matter what, don't forget, forget about your sin. Uh, just, God loves you, right? And let's say we're preaching on Abraham, for example. What many churches will do is they'll give you four ways to be more like Abraham, and then the sermon will end. And they'll never point to Jesus because in their mind, they're like, Jesus isn't in the text, right? But here's the problem. If I preach a sermon to you, about how to be more like Abraham, and don't ever point to Jesus and say amen, I can preach that same sermon in a synagogue and a mosque and nobody would be offended. Muslims and Jews are like, amen. Our religion is man-centered, so that makes sense to us. So, so many churches will preach 40 minutes of law and then give a a gospel, it's like the, the Marvel movies, like that bonus scene. It's, it's 40 minutes of law, and then if you stay long enough, maybe you'll hear about the gospel at the end. But it doesn't connect with what they just gave you for, for the last 40 minutes. That's why, and we'll get to, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but that's why you're not going to hear from me every week three things to do or two things to do. Because here's the thing. Let's say I gave you three things to do every week. Three times 52. That's over 150 things you got to do every year to be a good Christian. And I don't know about you, but when, I, when I'm a bad father or a bad spouse, it's never because I forgot application point number three in the sermon last week. It's because I have forgotten who I am in Jesus. 
It's because I'm acting like an orphan. It's because I'm trying to find in my spouse, my, my earthly spouse, what I already have in my heavenly spouse. That's why I'm messing up. It's not because I forgot the application step. So gospel-centered is not man-centered. But you know another thing that it's not? And this one's going to be controversial, okay? This one's going to seem heretical. I believe in light of this passage that not only are we not called to be man-centered, we're also not called to be Christ-centered. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. Who hired this guy? (laughs) Here's what I mean. When people bring up Christ-centered, almost always what they are referring to is the person of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the 33 years that Jesus lived on earth. The problem with only zooming in on those 33 years is that Jesus becomes an example to follow, not a savior to believe in. That's the issue. I would argue that Christ-centered preaching is actually more crushing and more demoralizing than man-centered preaching. Because there's a chance I can be more like Abraham if I try hard enough. There's a chance I can be more like David if I try hard enough. But if you're calling me to be more like Jesus, as an example, without having him as my savior doing it, you're crushing me at a whole nother level. So Christ-centered preaching, even though it sounds great on the surface, can actually crush you more than man-centered preaching. Not only is Christ-centered preaching more crushing, but I would argue that it actually ends up missing some of the important parts of the work that God came to do. Here's the thing. If we're only focused on Christ, then we actually lose, out the, lose what the Trinity does in salvation. Did you know that the whole Trinity is involved in your salvation? Not just the Son? It says in Scripture that the Father sends, the Son saves, and the Spirit secures and sanctifies. But if all we are is Christ-centered, then we're missing what the Father did and what the Spirit does. The other thing, too, is if we're only focused on the life of Jesus, then we don't really ever get benefits from the death of Jesus or the ascension of Jesus or the intercession of Jesus in heaven right now. We have to be a church that preaches the cradle, the cross, and the crime. If you've noticed in this series, we we looked at the cradle during the rescue mission series. We looked at the uh, we looked at the um, at, at the crown when we looked at King Herod. And we've been looking at Jesus from a whole different bunch of different angles. But if all we were looking at was the person of Jesus, the 33 years he was on earth, then we're missing out on many of the benefits and many of the implications of the gospel. So I know that sounds heretical. But I don't believe in a lot of this parable we are called to be Christ-centered either. Look at this quote from Pastor Cole Brown. He says, one can preach about Jesus every week and never touch the gospel. On the surface, that sounds ridiculous since the message of the gospel is the good news of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Yet, listen to this, it is surprisingly easy to talk about Jesus without mentioning his redemptive work. This happens when we focus on his perfect life without focusing on the fact that he lived it as our substitute, not merely as our example. These Jesus-centered sermons tell us to love like Jesus, forgive like Jesus, uh, uh, tell the truth like Jesus, pray like Jesus, disciple like Jesus, obey like Jesus, and so forth. Yet, listen to this, these Jesus-centered sermons are not gospel-centered sermons. They are the opposite. They are morality-centered sermons. And then he says, 
They leave us with the burden of imitating Jesus to please God instead of the joy of knowing Jesus has already pleased God for us. Come on, church. I'm turning on lights. I'm going into your religious house and I'm turning lights on because you haven't heard this. So that, that I, you know what I'm trying to do, really? Honestly, I'm trying to mess up your view of preaching. I want you to get to the place where you hear preaching and you're like, man, this ain't good enough preaching for me. But I don't want it to be because, oh, my pastor's a good preacher. I don't care about that. I want you to listen to them and be like, if you don't get to Jesus, you ain't preaching the Bible. Because Luke chapter 24, Jesus talks about how all the scripture points to him. But when you think about it, it doesn't just point to the person of Jesus because Isaiah 53 points to the work of Jesus. Genesis 3 points to the work of Jesus. Not just the person, but the work. So even Jesus was gospel-centered. We have to get to a place where our sermons and preaching is not man-centered, is not Christ-centered, it's gospel-centered. Gospel-centered. Here's why the gospel is what we are going to be centered around going forward. Because the gospel includes the person and the work of Jesus. This is this. The gospel is high law and high love. It's both. Remember how we said with man-centered preaching, it's either all law or all love? No, the gospel's both. It is high law and high love. So the, the high law shatters you, and the high love picks you back up. And so that's why I told you when I first got here that I preached two-point sermons. Because in the first point, point I'm going to give you the law. Whatever that passage says, people start to be like, oh, I'm pretty good at this. I, I, I could do this. No, no, no. My first 35 minutes is to prove to you that you can't do it. That's the first 35 minutes. And then the last part is, it's okay that you can't do it because Jesus did it for you. So the high law prepares you for the high love. That's why these are so important. And you might be sitting here thinking, well, Will, it, doesn't, it just doesn't feel like you believe in me. I don't believe in you. <laughs> I don't believe in you at all. Don't get it twisted. Like, don't, I'm telling you I don't believe in you. If there's a passage in Scripture where Jesus says that he avoided men because he knew men's hearts. Jesus doesn't believe in you. If he did, he wouldn't have to come and die for you. It says in, in, in John chapter 15, Jesus says that apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. He doesn't say that apart from me, you can do okay. Hey, apart from me, you'll get a 2.0 average. No, no, no. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Absolutely nothing. And so the reason why the gospel is what will be preached here from here on out is because every week I want you to leave with a higher esteem for Jesus and what he's done instead of a higher esteem for you and what you do. I'm only hitting one nail every week from here on out. Because if I hit that nail long enough, it'll make you a better spouse. It'll make you a better parent. It'll make you a better Christian. It'll make you a better tither. It'll make you a better everything. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, because the gospel is endlessly rich, 
it can handle the burden of being the one main thing of a church. See, but here's how a lot of Christians treat the gospel, right? Let's just be honest. The gospel is the ABC of Christianity. It's for non-believers. Hey, there's a non-Christian here. Give them the gospel. Give them the gospel. What I want you to know is that the gospel isn't just the kindergarten. The gospel is the whole freaking school building. And so every week, we just grow into a deeper understanding and appreciation and reliance on the gospel. The gospel is sufficient enough to evangelize the lost and edify the found. And that's why it's what we will preach. Guys, but when you think about that, when you process that, let me put it to you like this. The reason why I'm so passionate about this I don't say this. I don't want to get emotional up here. Man, when I became a Christian, all I heard was law. It's like, hey, if you want to be a Christian, this is the devotional you got to read. And this is the group you got to be a part of. And this is the box you got to check. Guys, I'm tired of that. Uh, the reason why we're going to preach the gospel is I'm tired of pretending. I'm tired of performing. I'm tired of checking off boxes. I'm tired of wearing masks. I'm tired. I don't know about you, but I'm tired. I'm tired. And I, I, I just can't. I, I, I can't give my life to anything other than this. Because if all we preach is love, then we're no different from the world. And if all we preach is love, then we're no different from any other world religion. The gospel is what differentiates us from any other relationship or religion. It's the only thing that's different. That's why one of the things that ticks me off is those, those, those bands that people wear, the, the what would Jesus do bands? Because what would Jesus do sounds really good on the surface. But really what it is, it's Christ-centered. It's Jesus as your example. What would Jesus do? The gospel doesn't say what would Jesus do. The gospel says what has Jesus done? That's what you need to be aware of. That's the good news. That's what your soul needs to hear. So, so, so when you get that, when you understand that, all of a sudden, what, what, you start to, what you start to realize is that we are accepted, and not because of our performance, but because of his performance. And not because of our uh, uh, obedience, but because of his obedience. Not because of our worthiness, but because of his worthiness. Man, and when you hear that week after week after week after week after week, it changes everything. The first thing we're called to be is a centered church. The second thing that we're called to be is a compassionate church. And the reason why I say that is because in the passage, verse 20, uh, it says that, and he arose. It's talking about the son. It says, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt what? Compassion. He felt compassion. The, 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 the Greek word there, uh, compassion, it, it, it literally means, get this, it means to have mercy and or pity for someone. But even more than that, it means to take your heart out and place it somewhere else. It means to be moved in your bowels in the Greek. Because in those days, the bowels were where people thought your emotions came from. That's what the word compassion there means in the Greek. It says that the father felt compassion. 
to have mercy and grace on his sons. Now, I didn't share this in the last service, but I think this is important. If we are going to be a compassionate church, here, here's what this means, you guys. We must get to, oh, and real quick, it, it, it wasn't just the Father that shows compassion. I found out this week, and I didn't know, that the emotion that Jesus most feels in all of the Gospels is compassion. It's the word that the Gospel writers use the most to describe how Jesus was feeling. And he felt compassion, and he felt compassion, and he felt compassion. But the Father, he feels compassion. He doesn't just show mercy, he shows grace. Now, now, the question is, what's the difference between mercy and grace? I heard a pastor a few years ago make a distinction between the two. He said that mercy, get this, mercy is, if, is when you don't give someone what they deserve. That's mercy. But, but grace is when you give someone what they don't deserve. So he gives an example. He says, mercy is if some, it's like if someone broke into your house and you don't call the cops on them. That's mercy. You should call the cops, but you're not doing it. Grace is not just not doing what they don't deserve. Grace is giving them what they don't deserve. So, so, so remember, mercy is not just not giving them what they actually deserve. He said grace, it wouldn't just be you not calling the cops. It would be you handing them the keys to your house. That's what the difference between mercy and grace. It's not just giving people what they don't deserve. It's not, it's not just giving people what they actually, like not giving them what they actually deserve. It's giving them what they don't deserve. The Father doesn't just show mercy. He doesn't just not call the cops. He gives them the keys, the robe, the sandals, the ring. We are called to be a compassionate church in light of this parable. If the Father is doing it and if Jesus is doing it, that is what we must be. If we are going to be a prodigal church, we must be a compassionate church. Remember what I said earlier. It, it is the ultimate form of spiritual maturity in light of this passage. When we become, we stop being like the elder brother, we stop being like the younger brother, and we start being like the father. It is the ultimate form of spiritual maturity. Uh, a few years ago, I was talking to my mentor who, who passed away this year, Lon. And, and I, was, I was talking to him about how I was in this small group with these Christians. And we went around the room and we were talking about the subject of giving. And I told him that I was surprised that so many mature Christians were not giving at all to church. They all went around and almost all of them like, yeah, I don't give. Yeah, I don't give to church. I don't give to church. And so I went to Lon, not to judge him, but I just wanted wisdom. I'm like, man, why are there so many mature Christians that don't give to church? He's like, there's one problem with what you just said. I'm like, what's that? He's like, you call them mature. He said, the proof of spiritual maturity is when you start giving of yourself financially, spiritually, relationally. If your Christianity is only Sunday morning in your small group, you're not as mature as you think. True maturity is when you stop coming out of your holy huddles and you start giving of your faith, giving of your resources, giving of your talents. If you're not doing the giving, the serving, the sharing, the evangelizing, then you can call yourself a lot of things, but you can't call yourself mature. Because according to this parable, spiritual maturity is when we start behaving like the Father. Uh, J.D. Greer, in one of his books called uh, Gaining by Losing, he says something that, that really impacted me. He says that there are three types of churches in America. There's the cruise ships, there's the battleships, and then there's the aircraft carriers. He says that many churches in America are the cruise ships, and the people that come to those churches are the customers, the consumers. And, and hey, oh, you, you, you need a pool? Yeah, well, we got a pool for you. 
Oh, you, you, you want a badminton team? Okay, yeah, we got badminton for you. Oh, you want a massage? Yeah, yeah, we got a massage for you. And the whole thing is, is a church, it's a cruise ship, making sure that its constituents and its customers are happy. That's one type of church. He says the second type of church are the churches that are the battleships. And the battleship churches are the ones that they, they are convinced that the world is going to hell in a hell handbasket, and we are to hate the world. That's our enemy. And when you come here, we give you, a, we give you a gun, we give you a helmet, we give you a backpack, and we are at war. We are fighting against the world. It's us against them. The problem with that approach is that in John 3, 16, it says that the, God, the Father loved the world. Not in that he's in the sinful aspect, but he loved the people of the world. So the problem with the battleship church, where it's us against them, is that they're not really understanding John 3.16, or the Great Commission for that matter. He says that the only biblical model of a church is an aircraft carrier. Not a cruise ship, not a battleship, but an aircraft carrier. Why? What does an aircraft carrier do? The planes land, they get refueled to go out again. You're not staying on this ship. There's no rooms for you to sleep in. You, 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 You get here, you get refueled, and then you go back out. That's the type of church that we should be. I want High Point Church to, from here on out to be an aircraft carrier church. Where you come here, we, we gather in order to scatter. We come together, you get refueled by the gospel, and you go out to share it with other people. That's the only type of church that is biblically acceptable. So if you're looking for a cruise ship, there's plenty of those. And if you're looking for a battleship, there's some of those, but this not be your church if that's what you're looking for. So, question is, if that's what we're being called to do, why do we struggle so much with doing it? Right? Why, why do we struggle with being compassionate? I would argue that the reason why you and I struggle so much in, in being compassionate and in, in, in sharing the Father's love, the reason why we don't extend his love, get this, is because we really haven't embraced his love. I can't exhale what I haven't inhaled. And because, back to my first point, you've been under law-based preaching. You haven't gotten gospel preaching, for those of you who've grown up in the South. No wonder. If I'm not hearing a gospel message, how can I carry out a gospel mission? That's the issue. That many of us, we don't actually believe God fully loves us. We don't actually believe. And like I said last week, we believe in grace a lot, but not grace alone. And so because we can't really believe it, because we can't really embrace it, I can't extend something I haven't embraced. I can't exhale something I haven't inhaled. Again, J.D. Greer in his book, he uses this illustration that I find just really encouraging, and I hope it encourages you. He, he talks about how there are two types of balloons. If you get a balloon, there's essentially two things you can do with a balloon. The first thing you can do is you can blow your own breath into it. He's like, the problem with blowing your own breath into it is that now, if you want that balloon to stay up, you got to constantly be hitting that balloon to stay up. Because it's your own breath. It's your own work. So I only got to breathe into it. Now you got to keep it alive. Oh, that balloon's going down. He says that, that when you preach law... That's what it is. You're blowing your own breath into people's balloons. People are going, okay, pastor, I'm out of breath. I need a reminder. Well, here's four more things. Here's seven more things. Here's eight more things. And you're like, and the whole week you're hitting the balloons up in your marriage. And 
in, in your singleness and at your work and at school. You're just hitting balloons up. Oh, I'm not being a good husband. I got to hit that balloon up. Oh, I'm not being a good grandparent. I got I to gotta hit that balloon up. And, and that, that's love. So, so what he says is that people are being called to go on a gospel mission but aren't hearing gospel messages. He says, when the gospel is actually preached, instead of blowing air, your own air, into a balloon, you put helium in a balloon. He's like, when you put helium in a balloon, you don't have to hit it up anymore. You actually got to tie that bad boy down because it's about to fly away. That's what I hope. I hope that as you come to high point, even though on the one hand, I'm going to give you high law and make you feel really, really bad about yourself. I'm going to conclude with high love and show you that all that Jesus did for you. So you leave not having to hit balloons up, but you just got to tie that thing down because it's helium instead of your own breath. Man, once you start hearing that gospel message, all of a sudden it becomes a lot easier to carry out the gospel mission. But one of the reasons why we struggle is another one is that I believe that part of the reason why we struggle with being compassionate is because being compassionate is hard. It's, it's, it's a messy business. You know, I don't know if you noticed this in the text, but in the passage, and I don't want you to miss this, the father hugs and kisses his son before he gets showered, before he cleans up, before anything. That was a very messy experience. He's kissing them all over. And the, and the Greek says he kissed them again and again and again and again. And he hasn't showered. He's been in a pig pen, and he's just walked all the way back in, 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 that, in that heat. And the father kisses him. Listen. If we're going to be that type of church, it's messy. And everybody's cool with prodigals until they start showing up. I remember when I, when, when I, back when I was a youth pastor, uh, we, we had this uh, girl who started coming to our church. She was like 17. She was seven months pregnant. And she came to our church, and our girls, our, the girls in our youth group started ministering to her, sharing their faith with her. She came to know the Lord. Two months later, she had a baby. And our girls, in order to minister to her, not celebrate the decision, but, in, but the, 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 what happened, but to, to minister to her, they wanted to have a baby shower. And I remember the, the leaders in our church said, no, under no circumstances will we celebrate that girl's sin. That girl left. Because everybody likes prodigals until they, sh- until they show up. Every parent wants prodigals in the youth group until your kids start sitting around that kid. There's a cost. And you're like, but we just can't take anybody back. Well, what if, what if, we, what if we bring them back and, and they leave again? What, what if we bring them back and they, and they hurt us? What if, what if they bring them, we bring them back and they don't keep their word? Well, guess what? The same thing that you're scared of them doing to you is the same thing you've done to the Father. And guess what? You and I have done way more than just squander one-third of the estate. And the Father took us back knowing that we would forget him, that we would betray him, and that we would hurt him. So the reason why we should do it for them is because the Father did it for us. So, center church, compassionate church, and the last thing that I believe we have to be if we're going to be a prodigal church, if this series is going to change us at all, is we have to be a celebrating church. We just have to be. See, I, I don't know if you've seen it, but in the passage, the, the, the parable ends with a party. The parable ends with a celebration. 
The, 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 the father is, is, is partying because the lost has been found. The dead is now alive. There's, there's a celebration. And I believe that if we are going to be uh, 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 the church that God is calling us to be here in the city of Memphis, we have to be a celebrating church. But here's the thing, guys. Here's what a lot of churches do. Here's what tons of churches do. Most churches only celebrate two things. Well, three things. Buildings, budgets, and butts. You're like, butts? Yeah, I'll tell you in a second. Okay, so the first thing they celebrate is buildings. <laughs> hey, the building is paid off. Budgets. Man, there's money in the bank. And butts. Man, there's people in the seats. As long as there's buildings, budgets, and bodies, we're good. We're successful. You know what the problem with that is? That that is the same exact way that the world measures success. So if the way that we're celebrating success, the way that we're celebrating is the same way that a, a, a secular company celebrates or a governor in a, in, a, in a town celebrates, then I don't really know if we're doing the right thing. There might be something off with our theology. So the question is, not that those things are bad, but what should we be celebrating? If we are going to be a prodigal church, what should we be celebrating? Well, Jonathan Edwards uh, back in the 1700s, the Puritan Jonathan Edwards, he was in the middle of the, the, the Great Awakening, the, the, the revival of all revivals, right? And there was all these people coming to Jesus. But the thing is, Jonathan Edwards got concerned because he was like, hold on, how do we know if this is actually from God? There's a lot of people coming to Jesus, but how do we know if this is actually from God? So he wrote a book called The Distinguishing Marks of, a work, of, the, work, the Distinguishing Marks of a Work of God or a Work of the Spirit of God. He said, there are five things that need to be happening if the Spirit of God is actually at work in a church uh, or in a community. First one, get this, is a growing esteem of Jesus Christ, for Jesus Christ. One of the ways you know is if there is a growing esteem for Jesus Christ. So like I said, as I said earlier, if you leave and there's a higher esteem for you and for what you must do, instead of a higher esteem for Jesus and what he's already done, then maybe it isn't a gospel centered movement. See, a lot of people here in, in, in just in this region, they, they, they appreciate Jesus, they affiliate with Jesus, but they don't adore Jesus. Jesus is useful, but he's not beautiful. He's an accessory, but he's not a necessity. So a growing esteem for Jesus is one of the ways. Another way is a discernible spirit of repentance. But get this, if we, remember what I said last week about the elder brother. We are to repent not just for our rebellion, but for our religion. Not just for the, the bad stuff that we've done, but for the good stuff we've done for the wrong reasons. That's when you know that there's actually repentance taking place. Another one is this, a dogged devotion to the word of God. See, the, the best way to elevate the work of God is by examining the word of God. And in, 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 the, in Jesus, in the Gospels, when he's talking about the four soils, he says something that I actually missed for a long, long time. Jesus says that the fourth soil, the fourth person that actually produces a hundredfold, is not the person who hears and obeys. That's just an elder brother. It's the person who hears and understands. See, some of you have been sitting under the word of God for a long time. You've heard a lot. You probably even obey a lot. But do you understand? Because to truly understand the word of God, you understand Luke 24, that it points to Jesus and not to you. The other one is this, an interest, uh, an interest in theology and doctrine, which makes sense in light of the first three. 
And the last one is this, an evident love for God and neighbor. What I love about that last one is that you realize that a true movement of God isn't just gospel-centered, but it's also compassionate, which was the second point we said, that, that, that if it doesn't force you out, then you're not doing it right. Then it's not actually what you think it is. The Great Commission and the Great Commandment. So, those are the three things that God, I believe, in a lot of this parable is calling High Point Church to be. We are, if we're going to be a truly prodigal church, then we are a church that's going to be centered, compassionate, and celebrating. It's the only way things work. But here's my prayer for us, you guys. As we talk about celebrating, as we meditate on celebrating, you know what I, you know what I really want for our church? And this is one of the things that really bothers me. I get bothered by a lot of stuff. I'm sorry. But, I just, I, but, but this is another thing that bothers me. One of the things that I've seen here in Memphis, one of the things that I've seen here in the South, and again, I'm not saying that because I think we're better because the North has their own issues. But one of the things that I've seen here in the South is that everyone's always talking about the church there. I'm in this church, and I'm in that church, and I, I'm a member of this church. That's my pastor. Listen, I want for us to be a church that we can get to a place where we celebrate not people coming in through our doors, but people going into the father's, through the Father's doors. So, so what I mean is this. If, if God has a revival in Memphis and he decides to grow another church instead of High Point Church, I'm okay with that. Because what I want is for the kingdom of God to expand. I want people to enter into the Father's house. Not into our house, into the Father's house. And so when we sit here and we talk about, oh, well, there's there's a lot of churches here in Memphis. One of the things that bothers me about that is that there isn't a lot of churches in Memphis. There's only one church in Memphis. And it's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one church. And I want to be a church that celebrates brothers, other brothers and prodigals coming home, regardless of whether they come in here or not. That's the type of church we got to be. That's what I want to celebrate. That's what I want to be about. I want to be a church that celebrates uh, decisions just as much as we celebrate discipleship. I want to be a church that celebrates hand raises just as much as we celebrate heart change. I want to be a church that celebrates the 99 just as much as we celebrate the one. I want to be a church that celebrates evangelizing just as much as we celebrate edifying. I want to be a church that celebrates the things that God wants us to celebrate. I want High Point Church to be a church that celebrates how far you've come, not condemn you for how long you still have to go. I want our church to be known not for the stones that we throw, but for the gospel that we preach. I want our church to be known not for our our religious judging, but for our joyful gospel peace. That's what I want for our church. That's what I'm praying for our church. And the last thing I want to say, and and I promise I'll end with this. One of the things that Dr. Ed Clowney, this pastor who died several years ago, he was a pastor and a a professor at Westminster. He tells this story that when he was younger, get this, he said that when he was younger, one of the things that happened during the Vietnam War, in the middle of the Vietnam War, things got really bad, obviously. And then towards the end of the war, when, 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 when everything ended, soldiers started coming back. He says that one of the phenomenons that people forget about if you didn't live back then is that as soldiers were coming back, one of the things that started happening is that on every house there was banners across the garage or across the door. And the banner would say, welcome home, Jake. Welcome home, John. Banners all over the nation welcoming home these soldiers to their house. But here's what's crazy. And I don't want you to miss this. 
Jake was a nobody everywhere else. The only place where Jake was a somebody was in his father's house. He's the only place that he meant something was in his family's house. So, so he following me here. Listen, there are people here who you've been sitting here this whole series. You've been listening either online or here in person. You've been following along. And the Holy Spirit's been talking to you. And God's been calling you. And you're sitting here and you're like, I don't know if this is for me. What I need you to know is that in light of the Bible, in light of this parable, what the Bible says is that when one sinner repents, all of heaven rejoices. So if you're here today and you still haven't placed your faith in Jesus, you still haven't come back to the Father, I need you to know that when you place your faith in him, when you come back home, there's a banner across the gates of heaven that says, welcome home, sinner. Come on. Come on. That's what you need to know. Stop making excuses. Leave the distant land. Leave the front porch. Come home today. Today is the day. The banner is up. Your name is on it. God wants you. Come home. I want everybody to have their eyes closed, head bowed. Listen, if you're sitting here today and you know who you are, and you've been listening to this series and you've been following along and you saw how you're like the elder brother and you saw how you're like the prodigal and you're saying, I don't know if this is for me. Today is the day. Place your faith in Jesus. Come home to the Father. The banner is up. His arms are open. And the party has already started. Listen, if you're sitting here today and that's you, you know who you are. What I want to do here in the next few seconds, I want to give you an opportunity to raise your hand. Not because the hand raise changes anything, but because that hand raise allows me to see and for us to see that there's been a heart change. It's, it's, it's an external reaction to an internal reality. So if you're sitting here today and you, you want to come home, you're the elder brother who's tried to earn it. You're the, the younger brother who has squandered it. If you want to come home today, I'm giving you the opportunity. On the count of three, I'm going to have you raise your hands. Everyone eyes, everyone's eyes closed. Everyone's heads bowed. No one's going to see you. It's just you and me. But if you're sitting here today and that's you, you want to come back to the Father. On the count of three, I want you to make yourself known so I can pray for you. One, two, three. If that's you, raise your hand. Father God, I pray for all these hands. Father God, I want to thank you and I want to praise you for these people that are coming home today. I want to thank you and I want to praise you for the people who either have never been at home at all or left home a long time ago. They were in the distant land or they were on the front porch. I, I thank you that through this series, you have revealed to us that we're all welcomed home and that there's a banner with their name on it. As they place their faith in you and they renew this commitment or for the first time make a commitment, we believe in light of scripture that they, have been, they, were, lo they were lost, now they're found. They were dead, now they're alive. They were your enemy, now they're your child. We thank you and we praise you for these people who are following you for the first time now. Amen. Hey, before I get off, I, get off from the stage, I want to just take a moment and tell you about something that we're going to be doing for the next 12 days. 
One of the things that I am convinced of is that if we're going to be a prodigal church, not only must we be centered, not only must we be compassionate, not only must we be celebrating, but we must also be praying. So what I want to do as we begin 2020 is I want to start this year by praying together. But the reason why I waited until we finished the series is because I wanted us to pray in light of the series, in light of the parable. So what we're going to do for the next 12 days, there's 12 days between today and the end of January. For the next 12 days, we are going to take the parable that we just went through and we're going to use it as a filter to pray, not just for our hearts, not just for our church, not just for our city, but for our world. And so for the first four days, we're going to pray for the prodigals, the prodigals in our hearts, the prodigals in our churches, the prodigals in our city, the prodigals in our world. The next four days, we're going to pray for the elder brothers in our hearts, the elder brothers in our families, the elder brothers in our city, the elder brothers in our world. And then the last four days, probably the one I'm most excited about is we're going to pray that we would have a, the father's heart, that we would be the father's church, that we would be the father's city. We're going to pray for all of that. And the reason why we're praying for the city and the world is because of what I said earlier. I want us to be a church that prays for other churches. I want us to be a church that celebrates regardless of if people go to High Point or Fellowship or wherever they go. I want to be a church that celebrates people coming to the Father's house. And so if you are interested in wanting to pray, I pray that you would be. Because I genuinely believe that there is power in prayer. I heard a quote the other day that said that the hinges of heaven's doors are prayer. That if we're not praying, we shouldn't expect the hinges to turn. So let's pray for 2020. Let's pray in light of this parable. If you're interested in being a part of this, here's what the 12 days of prayer look like. You can text 97000, text 12 prayer to 9700. You will get daily uh, prayers and passages. You, we will also be doing it on, online and we'll also be sending out an email, social media and an email. So we'd love for you to participate and for us to pray for us to be a prodigal church. Amen? Let's worship the Lord.